How to Play, Episode 4W, How to Win Age of Steam, with me, Ted Alsbach. Hello and welcome to the How to Play podcast, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Buffalo, New York. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this podcast is about learning and teaching games. If you like the show, join and participate in our guild at BoardGameGeek. For more information about all the How to Play podcast episodes, the corresponding teaching guides, and the discussion forums, refer to the How to Play Geek List, for which you can find a link there at the Guild. You can also check out our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, where you can support the show with a PayPal donation, and I can be contacted at the Guild on BoardGameGeek or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This episode is part of How to Play's How to Win series. The How to Win series of podcasts will take a game previously covered on How to Play and go beyond the basic rules to explore some advanced strategy. This podcast is intended to be used by experienced players of the game who are looking to take their gameplay of that game to the next level. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, How to Play fans. This is Ryan Sturm. Welcome. I have a special treat for you today. Ted Alsbach has agreed to be on the show. Ted is a game designer, well known for being a very prolific Age of Steam map designer. So I asked Ted if he would come on the show to talk Age of Steam with me. And happily enough, he agreed. And believe it or not, with two guys who love that game as much as we do, things got a bit out of control. We talked for about two hours about our favorite game. And because it's as long as it is, I'm going to chop this into two parts, make it a little bit more digestible. The first half of the conversation, we talked sort of just general Age of Steam strategy. It's a bit hard to get into specifics because of the nature of Age of Steam. It really matters so much from map to map. But we were able to give some general guidelines and hints that hopefully will be of use to you. And also just got into some fun bits of things that we love about the game Age of Steam and a little bit of Age of Steam etiquette, all sorts of good stuff. So I think you'll enjoy that. The second part, which I'll release in about a week or two, we're going to call that uh, episode 4X, the debut of the expansion series, because the second half, we give sort of a general survey on the different Age of Steam map expansions. Ted, having designed over 40 of them, had a lot to say on that subject about some of his favorite maps, some of his upcoming maps. And we talked about, you know, favorite maps for different numbers of players, some of our favorite wackiest maps. So that's what that episode will be about, and that will release shortly. So look forward to that. If you're coming into this, listening to this, and you've never played Age of Steam before... Oh, I don't I don't know what to tell you. You're going to probably have to send back your how to play Dakota Ring back into the How to Play studios. That is our favorite game here at How to Play. So I, I beseech you to immediately, as soon as possible, give episode four a listen. Episode four teaches you how to play Age of Steam. Get some of your people in your game group to sit down for a game. And if you like the same sort of style games that I like, those uh, heavy decision-making, lots of interaction, very tense games with a high learning curve and very little amount of luck, you're going to love Age of Steam. So give that a go. Listen to episode four, and then you'll be entitled to come back and listen to this conversation, and I will mail you back your How to Play Decoder Ring. But without further ado, let's get in to the first part of this episode with my guest, Ted Alsbach. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode. Uh, this is the second edition of our How to Win series. This is an episode I've wanted to do for a long time to talk about some advanced strategy about my favorite game, Age of Steam. And fortunately, I have a very special guest here to talk with me about Age of Steam. And his name is Ted Alsbach. Hi, Ryan. Hello. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. For those of you who don't know Ted, uh, Ted is one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific. Are you the most prolific Age of Steam map creator out there? I am definitely the most prolific, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple others out there that have maybe a dozen or so, but I have a ridiculous number. Uh, I just did the math, and I'm, I'm at 45 of my own Age of Steam maps have been published or will be published by the end of this year. That is excellent. Uh, and I personally have enjoyed playing many of Ted's maps. I haven't played all of them. And Ted is, are you the president and uh, founder of Bezier Games? Yes, uh, Bezier Games. Bezier um, Games. Yeah, I, 
I am, and I am the sole employee um, at this point too, which is kind of exciting. Do you want to tell us about some of your products? Sure. So uh, Bezier Games was formed about five years ago um, when I published Start Player, which was a, at the time, I called it a kind of collectible card game. It was a card game for determining who goes first in board games. Mm-hmm. Um, following that, I uh, published uh, many Age of Steam maps and uh, a lot of other games, including Ultimate Werewolf, which is by far the top-selling game from Bezier Games, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other uh, games like Beer and Pretzels and Perpetual Motion Machine. And this year, there's one called Tiebreaker, which is kind of a follow-up to start player that determines who wins ties. And you have 47 different Age of Steam maps. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, 47 different ones are being published um, through both both myself before Bezier Games got started and as Bezier Games, the difference, the uh, 45 are mine and two are from J.C. Lawrence, who is a, a local gamer here who designed a few Age of Steam maps. And anyone who's familiar with the Age of Steam forums on Board Game Geek probably recognizes his name. That's great. So you have a hot new set of maps coming out this year? Yes, I have uh, eight new maps coming out uh, this year. And for the second year in a row, um, six of them are mounted, which uh, for me... Um, you know, I love mounted maps. I've done both mounted and non-mounted, and it's a little more expensive to do mounted ones. But uh, uh, I really, really like the just that that tactile feel of a mounted map. And so six of them are mounted. There's two that are bonus maps that you get if you pre-order the maps before uh, October that aren't mounted. Um, but overall, yeah, eight brand new ones this year. And they can order those through your website, or or what's the best way to get if you're not going to be at Essen? Definitely the best way, and in fact, the only way to get the bonus maps is by pre-ordering. If they go to beziergames.com, uh, there's, it's right in the front page there. They can uh, click the link and order that, and as soon as they're available, they'll get them, and they'll, they'll probably get them the week before Essen. So it's actually, if you pre-order, you get them a little earlier than the folks who uh, travel all the way to Germany. And I know uh, eventually you release those out to uh, some online distributors. I know I see them at Boards and Bits, so will you be releasing those there too? Yeah, yeah, they'll... Um, I have a distributor, um, you know, for all my games, and a lot of uh, resellers uh, sell Age of Steam maps. Uh, big shout out to Boards and Bits, who, you know, as any Age of Steam fan probably knows, they carry the biggest selection of Age of Steam maps. They were the first online reseller to carry my maps several several years ago. Um, they bought up a couple extra Bay Area maps that I had, which is the first map that I published. And ever since then, they've uh, they've been selling maps for me. And they, they sell the same. They sell Age of Steam maps for the Steam Brothers and uh, AOS team and, uh, you know, a few other ones that are out there. So um, they're they're pretty awesome. Yeah, they are sort of the source. If you're looking for Age of Steam maps, it's a great place to go. They have a lot of maps from a lot of different um, publishers, whether it's uh, the Steam Brothers or AOS team or yourself. Yeah. So let's get into talking about our favorite game. Is Age of Steam your favorite game as well, Ted? It, it is, although I have to say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing because, you know, if you say, what am I playing the most of right now? It's not Age of Steam because I'm in a I'm in an off cycle. So uh, usually for me, the winter, the spring starts in BGG Con. Usually I start bringing maps to cons and playing with people outside my game group, uh, Age of Steam. And then by the end of usually March or April, um, sometime after the gathering, um, I am pretty much done and I'm just uh, finishing up things. And so I kind of take a break then because I've played so much with these new maps. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll play four or five times a week um, in March and April. And then, you know, like right now, I haven't played for probably three or four weeks at this point. So uh, it's a it's a weird little lull on and off. Are you um, are you but... starting to get the shakes? Do you start to get the shakes if you haven't played for a few weeks? <laughs> um, no, not necessarily, because <laughs> I know, because in the back of my mind, I know that as soon as I start playing again, and in fact, as soon as I receive my um, the, the first printing news, they send me samples of uh, the maps, as soon as they send that to me, I'm going to want to break them out and, you know, uh, grab a bunch of friends and go, okay, they're here. Come on, let's play. And of course they've already played them. They're like, we've already played these, but I'm like, yeah, but it's actually on the real board now. And <laughs> they, they usually tolerate that and, and play a couple games with me on them that way. That's the problem with age of steam is that nobody ever really wants to play that same map twice. Do they? That has to be a challenge as uh, trying to play test your maps. Yeah. Well, Kind of, it's kind of nice. I have a you know a core game group um, that plays Age of Steam. Um, I convinced my wife um, a few years ago to uh, take up Age of Steam with me. Um, Bless that woman. Son, yeah, yeah. My <laughs> my son plays, and so you know, 
uh, I've got a lot of different uh, folks that I can play with. So in some ways, unless I make some dramatic changes to a map, I try not to play too many times with the same same the same gaming group mm-hmm. on a particular map because they're going to have a pattern. They're going to recognize things. Um, you know, I'm I've done this enough now that I realize that uh, a second play of, from the same people isn't really going to give me too much new information about how to modify and develop the map further. Do you play with them or do you uh, sit as an observer? Mostly I play with, um, you know, I've done the observing, but um, it, it, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat. I don't know if you've ever done that for any game where there's a game you really like and you just have to watch um, and you're like, oh, no, and you can't say anything, of course, as an observer. Right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, no, I play most of the time. Great. We're going to get into some advanced strategy for specifically Age of Steam. And I know that there's a lot of players out there who do enjoy the Steam version of the game. But for the purposes of our discussion today, just as it it's sort of a little bit different to talk about those two different systems, we're going to focus mainly on the rules for Age of Steam. But most of the things that we're talking about, you, you probably can relate those over for those Steam players. While we're talking about Age of Steam and Steam, now the maps that you produce, do you come out with the rules so that those are playable for Steam or Age of Steam? Yeah, so all of the maps um, that I've designed that are published for Bezier Games uh, can be played with both Steam or Age of Steam. I had to go back and retrofit a bunch of them when Steam was introduced a few years ago um, to the older maps. But now everything comes out with the rules that work with both of them. And uh, it's interesting that the uh, last year's maps and this year's maps were a lot easier because um, I know what areas to avoid. And so I'm trying not to make rule changes for things like the production chart, which doesn't exist in Steam. Right. It exists in a very different fashion, of course. Yeah. Um, or any of the other little changes that that really cause for you know a whole slew of additional rules per version that you're playing so um this year's maps are with with a very few exceptions they're pretty much exactly the same for steam and age of steam which works really well so but again i think my brain is actually thinking about that as i'm putting those rules down of what impact will this have on this game versus the other one are you willing to uh, pick sides here on the record of, of where you stand on that line of Age of Steam or Steam? Do you enjoy both games? Do you prefer one over the other? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely pick sides right in the middle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, I think for me, because I've been playing Age of Steam longer, that's definitely kind of where my heart lies. If I if I had a choice of what to play, you know, if, if you said you can only play one, I would have to pick Age of Steam. It's not that I don't like Steam. I think it's an excellent game, and I think that uh, what Martin Wallace tried to do with that, he was mostly successful in in terms of making the game a little more forgiving um, for new players. And the fact that they have the basic game and the standard game uh, in place there, and and I know a lot of people who like one or the other, and a lot of people who like the standard game of Steam who don't like Age of Steam, which to me initially was really strange because I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, they're so close. Why wouldn't you just use Age of Steam then? Why why is Steam better? But there are there's a bunch of subtle differences and you know for some people that's that's what they prefer and you know i certainly can play either one and and really have a great time doing it so if, if i'm not going to turn down a, a game of steam um at any time if someone wants to play yeah I, I certainly understand that perspective coming to steam after you've played you know 50 or more games of age of steam it's hard to sort of just shift that paradigm when you get so used to and you you fall so much in love with that original game those little tweaks they do make a big difference and so you know i my heart still lies in original age of steam which is why we're going to talk about that today you know steam is is a good variation and you think about it just as you know another variation just like all the maps are other variations it, it is a solid system but i think my heart still lies with original age of steam yeah and that's that's kind of where i am i think the one thing i would contrast that with is the um railroad tycoon slash railways of the world Mm -hmm. which i don't feel uh, is as good as age of steam or steam i think there it's actually lacking and of course the cards in um the original railroad tycoon really made it frustrating the turn order issues it has and and a few other things that are problematic about it although it is really pretty and having a giant map on your table is kind of cool. But overall, that's that's definitely one that I would probably go, no, I'd really, really rather play Steam of Age of Steam than, than one of those two. It is definitely pretty, but uh, those cards popping up can be an issue. I do like sort of the 
novelty of it, a little bit different, how the, um, the getting the different engines works. I, I kind of enjoy that. I liked it when it went over to the Europe map and, and the England map. It's, it's much more balanced, but that first map certainly has some issues. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's get to my baby, your baby, Age of Steam. Let's talk to our listeners about using our wisdom and try to shed some light on how to win their next game of Age of Steam. How does that sound? That sounds terrific. All right. Uh, So we're going to talk about going through some of the different phases and giving you some tips on how to play Age of Steam. Then after we're done with that, we're going to go into looking at different maps that we've played and talk about some of our favorite maps. So if you're going to talk about Age of Steam strategy, I think it all begins on turn one. There's so many critical decisions that you have to make on that first turn, on that first time when you take out shares that really lends itself to the whole rest of the game. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that um, you know if you have a b- bad starting position, if you take too many shares, don't take enough shares, any of those things, if you make a mistake early on, uh, you could have a very, very long two hours in front of you. So let's start with the spin of the finger or the shake of the tokens. Which do you, do you like to take out shares first or do you like to take out shares last? Um, I would prefer to be last. Uh, that uh, I think you know when we look at it. Uh, the again, my core game group, we look at this, and second to last is the absolute worst place to be. Mm. Um, you know, you you end up either going last and you don't want to, um, or you're bidding a ridiculous amount to stay in, um, and it's just you, you have the least amount of options. So, uh, you know, for me, um, going last would be ideal. First or second is also good, but third, fourth, anywhere in that middle to end pack is terrible. That's just, you yeah. know, you get that that slot and you're miserable. You're like, oh, I do really like the last position. You know, you can really see what other people do and and react to that. Being first is can be a little bit tricky, but like you said, it's better than being somewhere in the middle of the pack. So when you when you sit down and you're looking at a new map, you're looking at the cubes, you're listening to the rules, what are some of the considerations that you're looking for right off the bat, Ted? So I think one of the things that's really important, I know we're not going to talk about individual maps right now, but because people do tend to play a lot of other maps, it's really important that you really grasp those rules well. And most maps, um, certainly my maps, have a very limited set of changes. They're easy to, to kind of grok as long as you know the basic Age of Steam game. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some maps, I know the ones I did for J.C. Lawrence and uh, you know AOS team, they can be a little more complex. If you don't get it, um, just pause for a second. And, and even if other people are a little irritated with you, they'll be more irritated later, um, you know, probably in the game anyway. But, you know, get those rules, uh, just kind of uh, totally digest them because finding out on turn two that, yeah, you can't deliver blue cubes to that city because of X, you know, whatever can totally wreck your game. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of people, uh, you know, they may not want to play the same map again and again. And so it may be months or a year or more until you play that map again. So, you know, get those rules in place. I think for me, that's, that's critical with all the different maps. And so one thing when I'm teaching one of my maps, I make sure that everybody really gets what those changes are. Um, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people take for granted. Oh, it's just some changes. It's Age of Steam. I'll do whatever. But uh, that can totally change the game. And, you know, I have, uh, unfortunately, a very unfair advantage when when playing uh, folks and doing playtesting because I tend to know the rules of my maps mm-hmm. really well. And they're all learning those rules. And so if there are any that are major um, rule changers, uh, they can be in a lot of trouble if they don't digest them before we start. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend, Rob, and his claim is, when you play a new map, the first person to figure out how to manipulate those new rules usually wins the game. And I, I think that's a pretty good philosophy, you know, and so that's yes. sort of an approach that I take. All right, so these are the new rules. How am I going to work that to my favor or how is that going to impact me? You know, so a lot of times you hear those rules, people read off the three or four rules. Normally there's only like three or four and they don't sound like that big of a deal. And then by turn three or turn four, it all goes, aha, oh, now yeah. I know what I should have been doing. And yeah, I, I, for, for me, I think the first time I played the Ireland England map, uh, which has the deurbanization rule, mm-hmm. um, those of us who played, I think one person had played before, they understood what deurbanization meant that you could take a cube away. The rest of us were like, whatever, that's stupid. I wish we had urbanization. You know, that's, uh, we're never going to use this other rule. And, uh, you know, 
two-thirds of the way through the game, you realize that these cubes you're depending on are being plucked away by a much craftier player than you, uh, then the, the game at that point is lost because um, you hadn't really thought that through. And so I think you know any one rule that can really have an impact, I agree. Make sure that people understand what that's going to do to the game beforehand. Many of the maps I've played could talk about that. I, I know your uh, Pennsylvania map with the coal. I know that happened to us about turn four, you know, when people realized, <laughs> oh, we should be shipping oh, other people's right. people coal. That's how it's supposed to work. I mean, that was a yep. aha moment. So, you know, a yeah. lot of maps you'll have that and you'll see a rule and all of a sudden someone will abuse the rule and you'll see how it's supposed to work. So when you when you play test a map, do you give some of that away? If you, I mean, you know the rules and you know you know what those rules are meant to do. Do you give them some tips on how to use those rules, or do you let them figure that out for themselves? I, I think it depends. I mean, part of it is um, when I'm playing with people uh, that I may not have discovered that particular aspect yet mm -hmm. uh, initially, so I can't say that, of course. Um, the other thing is if I do know it. Um, you know, I don't want I, to, I try to tell them for the most part, but at the same time, you know, I don't want them to think this is the path to victory, mm -hmm. uh, that you must do this. And uh, in Pennsylvania, you can win by never going to the west side of the state. You can actually win in the lower right-hand corner. You just have to be clever about it, and you have to figure out how to do it. And if you tell people, well, you know, coal's the key to victory. If you don't ship coal, uh, yours or someone else's, you can't win. That's what they're going to focus on. If they get stuck in the lower right or the upper right, uh, they're going to be miserable where the reality is people win there and, you know, everyone else is fighting over that coal. And meanwhile, you've got these amazing deliveries and you've created this this great web, this great little network down there. And you're getting uh, six deliveries on on turn five and the rest of them are still fighting back and forth and sharing the coal that they're, they're um, sending back and forth. This is true. You know, we talked about that aspect of the game, but a lot of times I've been successful when, you know, there's a big prominent element to the map and everybody decides, oh, you got to get that. And I've just decided, you know what, I'm going to ignore that. I'm just going to play sort of my own game and try to make solid deliveries and done very well because I haven't had to compete with that one element of the map. Certainly. So let's get back to turn one. Um, on turn one, what other than the new rules, what else are you looking at before you make some of those major decisions? Um, so I'm going to look at cubes. You know, I start, I definitely focus on the cubes on the map first, um, you know, looking where early on, you know, I got to get my, my ones and my twos and threes and fours um, so that I'm going to have some sort of base to work from and, you know, where are the cubes I can deliver. Um, I'll look at the production map. I, some people spend a lot of time analyzing the production map where the cubes are going to come out. And I do that to some extent. Um, you know, if I see a clump of something, like there's a clump of yellow and it's on a city where, wow, if I make this set, I'm going to have some six deliveries, you know, when it comes along you know, halfway through the game, that's great. But um, for the most part, I really focus on, you know, where am I going to have, a, a, where, where's a really good spot to start? Where are we going to be able to grow from? And then I'll look at the production chart to see where those cubes are going to be coming in later to make sure I can sustain that growth. Yeah, I think looking for clumps on the production chart is, is really a good tip. I think there's so much there. I mean, you could spend forever looking at it and seeing what's going to go out on the different cities. But if you see two or three coming up on a city, I, I think that that's something that you should pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's kind of the thing for me is if I see two in a column for a city, that um, might work out, then that gives a little bit more weight to that particular city as a starting city. So what, this is something that's changed for me. Initially, you know, a, a while back, when I was looking at my turn one options, I was always looking at, all right, how can I make two moves this turn? And now that's started to change for me a little bit. I'm looking for, you know, more big picture, big picture. What route do I really want on this map? What is your goal when you're doing that first build on that first turn? Uh, I mean, ideally, in a perfect world, you want to get a two delivery. You know, right. you'd love to be able to, to get a two, um, you know, that would be fantastic. Two twos, you know, if you get locomotive is even better. Um, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But um, that's certainly for me, as I'm looking at what my, what my options are, you know, if I build here, am I going to get, you know, what's my income level going to be at one, two, three, or four, or zero? That would be sad. Um, but that could happen too, I guess. Do you have and, you ever uh, done that? I see some some players do this, and I don't really agree with it. Is just passing on the first turn and just more setting up for long term, maybe turn two, turn three, getting some three deliveries or four deliveries. Yeah, um, I, I have uh, certainly. I think the the one map that I've done that the most on is Mississippi Steamboats. Um, I don't know if you've played that one. I have not. Um, 
okay, um, on the left side of the map, uh, it's kind of this big open field, and not much is happening, and you can kind of see that, wow, towards the end of the game, if I build something here, it'll be real lucrative, but early on, there's probably not going to be very many deliveries, whereas in the lower right and the top, there's a lot of deliveries early on, and there's a lot of cubes there ready to, to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, both myself and some other people I played with have been very successful in blowing off pretty much the first, maybe even the second turn, and creating this network on the left side where, you know, as once turn three hits, they're starting to make these huge deliveries. Um, and, you know, they're taking out minimal shares because they're not fighting with anyone else. Uh, they're just slowly, you know, maybe they're taking engineer. Um, they're just growing that network as quickly as possible in that, that area to, to be able to ship as many cubes as possible. Um, and, you know, you take that and you know that you're going to be in debt for more turns than you'd like. But once you come out of it, you're going to spiral forward and rocket past everyone else on the income track, hopefully. Of course, if you play some of your recent maps, notably, uh, notably Atlantis, uh, you don't have to worry about making early deliveries because there's just <laughs> none to be had. Because Yeah, and, and there's no such thing as rocketing forward. Forward, you know, on the income track in uh, Atlantis, either, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, how many shares do you like to take on turn one? Uh, I think you know, the standard, I think most people would say two. Um, and it, it, again, it depends on the map, depends on the cubes, depends on what I want. Um, I would say one or two. It is rare that I'll take three unless I see an opportunity that I think only I see. Um, if I see something that goes, you know what, if I get locomotive on this turn or if I get urbanization on this first turn and I go here, or even maybe it's first build, but it's really important to grab a certain area before anyone else, um, then I'll do three, but that's pretty rare. And of course it depends on the map. Some maps have very, very high costs. Like, uh, Vermont has very, very high costs of building, you know, across things and you just need extra money right. to be able to, uh, to do that. Yeah, that's the whole thing about that first turn is you have that first build tension and that you can set up this great plan of you know making two deliveries and, and have someone snag first build from underneath you. The worst is when you have to you know bid up for first turn and have to take first build to protect that one build that you really want to make. Right. And, you know, the way I think of shares in the first turn is in a typical four player game, that's eight. It's eight turns long. So every share you take is costing you eight dollars. Um, it's $8 that you're not going to have later in the game that you would have mm-hmm. had otherwise because you have to pay it back every single turn. You're never going to not pay it back. So, um, you know, is it really worth me paying $8 to take that extra share? Do I really, really need it? Because $8 is a lot, especially, you know, until you're in the, the mid to late game. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. So then if you look at the next turn, you say that share is going to cost me $7. Essentially, each share exactly. is going to cost you $7. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, another way that I look at it sometimes, you talked about some of the really expensive maps. There's some maps that you play, and after you you know this, you know that there's certain maps where at the end, everybody's going to be at 15 shares. There's not not a lot of them. Then my thought process is, all right, we're all going to get to 15 anyways. You know, certainly you do pay a premium for getting ahead of the other players. But if I know that there's going to be no advantage in the end game, uh, I'm not going to worry about, you know, trying to trying to stay one share behind everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I I mean, I'll I wouldn't be competitive. But at the same time, if I want something, I'll jump out ahead of the pack in terms of shares. Um, You know, I'm. I'm not concerned about being two shares ahead of someone if I think I have a substantially better position than they do. So let's uh, talk about shares a little bit more. You know, there's d- different approaches, and this is you know, one of the elements I really like about Age of Steam is trying to decide how to play this route. Do I want to try to, you know, play it as tight as possible and take very few shares, um, or, you know, a very successful tactic is to be a bully and to just take more shares than everybody and try to win as many auctions as you can or just try to stay in the middle of the pack. Where do you like to fall in in those different categories? I think it really depends on the game. I mean, I've certainly done... I have often taken extra shares just to intimidate other people into not bidding up the auction. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they look at me and they go, oh, crap, he's got $15. There's no way that I'm going to be, he's going to win the, the the auction regardless. Why am I going to pay seven dollars when I could pay three dollars, you know, and still go second? Um, that sort of thing. So, you know, for me, that's that seems like that's a cost cost effective uh, measure. And again, I think that's one of the reasons I like going last in that first turn is you can go ahead, you take that extra share, and suddenly people are dropping before you know you, you get second or third for for free, um, you know, in a five player game. That's kind of nice, um, just because you took one more share than everyone else, and they don't want to have to to bid you up. Um, on that first turn. 
Yeah, there's something to be said for potential when they know that you have more money than they do. And, you know, it's great. Even if you go first, though, um, in taking shares, it can be a real powerful tactic. As you said, say, I'll take four shares. You know, if you know that you need locomotive and you might take the extra hit on that, but you just you frighten everybody else away, which can be a strong tactic. I, I totally agree. I think, and that's that's uh, the other thing. One of the reasons I like going earlier, too, whether it's in the first turn or other turns, is that when you take those extra shares, people then they're going to just take as much as they need. They're going to know what I'm probably going to get second or third place, or I just don't care. It's I'm not going to fight with him at this point. And haha, he has to pay back those shares now every turn. Um, they can feel that way, and I'll do the same thing. Someone can intimidate me in the same way, and the 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 uh, smarter call maybe for me to just pack it in for that particular turn and not fight for the action that, that I maybe really, really want and go for a secondary or tertiary action. Yeah. This being a share bully is a great play until someone calls your bluff and takes the same amount of shares as you do and tries to take yes. you down for the loco. And then, and then you're out of luck. Yeah. I, I'm not sure why I know. Um, one of the maps that we tend to, you know, I, I played it a lot was a Europe of the American Europe set. And for some reason, that particular map causes these ridiculous share wars mm -hmm. uh, where we're up in the 16 and 17 bids. I mean, just insane. And of course, the person who loses that bid tends to lose the game. The person who wins it tends to come in second to last because right. all their money's shot. You know, if they absolutely needed it, they, they had to, to survive. It didn't really matter because now they've cut themselves off at the legs and, you know, they've they actually slide back on the income track because they can't pay their expenses or they'd have no money in the future to buy buy track or whatever. But um, that's happened in, in several games where you're up that high. Once you're up that high, you know, uh, you know, what have I done? It's too late, you know, but you're committed. So you, you hang in there and uh, it's terrible when that happens. That is something that, you know, I just love from Age of Steam. You get to that moment, there's that point of no return moment. Usually it's somewhere between five and eight dollars, right? And you say, okay, okay, I can bid seven. And then they go eight. And then you're like, okay, so if I go nine, I'm in this to win it. And then it's going to be yes. showdown at the OK Corral. <laughs> and we're both going <laughs> to stare at each other and we're going to decide, all right, one of us is going to back down or both of us are going to lose. I mean, those moments are some of the moments that makes Age of Steam great. I know they're great, and it's for me. It's even better when you're not part of that. Oh, particular it's so set much more people. fun to be an audience member in that situation. Uh, and, and you know, you want to provoke them a little bit, going, <laughs> "I can't believe you're going to let him have it. You have the money. You got to bid him up. You know, just don't let him take that away from you. You're going to pay eight dollars to go second. That's crazy. Yep. Pay ten. You go first. Oh, uh, and or just some of the mind games that go on during those auctions. I mean, there's there's nothing quite like it. So how many times do you go after winning the auction? I'm, it, it's definitely a good tactic. If you can get loco those first couple rounds and not pay too much for it, you're going to be pretty hard to stop. But when you're playing with good players, you're not going to be able to win the auction every round. So how many times do you go after winning that auction? Yeah, again, I think it depends on the map and depends on what your options are and really how valuable each of the individual actions are for that particular map. You know, a standard age of steam, rust belt, um, you know, I would say that you got to win more than your fair share mm -hmm. of the, of the auctions in order to win because urbanization and a uh, loco are just really, really powerful on that particular map. If you don't get one of those two, um, at least every other turn, you're out of it. There's no way you can win. Um, you know, so I think that is, it's pretty critical depending on the map. There are some maps where you can skate by, come in second all the time and, you know, People who come in first don't always take loco. They're going to take herb. They're going to take a first move. They're going to take something else sometimes because that's just where they are in the game. Um, and I think one of the really important things as a good Aegis team player is knowing what your opponents want mm -hmm. uh, because then right. you can do a lot better in the auction and you can drop a lot earlier if you realize they're not going for locomotive or they're not going for herb or whatever it is that you want. You can drop out a lot earlier, save yourself a lot of money and still do exactly what you wanted to do. And do yourself a favor, don't ask them what they want because they will either won't tell you or they'll lie. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have it in general as that that is a against the spirit of the game to Oh really? To uh, to actually uh, ask and have someone else that that's that's kind of been one of the things that in general we frown upon that that oh. you, you can ask but no one's actually going to tell you. Um it's it's one of those things that we don't usually discuss because it ends up being this weird little co-op thing between the top two bidders at that right. point. Um, and, you know, I, I much rather would much rather think that, you know, uh, 
these two people are going at it, both with locomotive, when maybe I know just as a bystander that one really wants herb and the other one wants locomotive, but they think the other one wants the action that they want. And so they keep going at it. Um, that seems a little more amusing and it keeps the bidding going up higher, which is always fun. That's interesting that you have a different etiquette rule. I mean, for us, it's more of like, like a poker game, you know, you'll, you'll just shoot out something like you want urbanization, don't you? And you'll just, you know, gauge their reaction and you know you know they're not going to say anything but you just look at them and, and see what they say or do and i don't know it's it's just a little bit of a bluffing you just have a little repartee back and forth so i don't know i can see that element too is if they if both players are honest about what they're going for uh i guess you know we're never honest and tell each other <laughs> well so, like i said i think the one thing that we're always concerned about is that you know it's it becomes a little co-op thing going on for the top two bidders. They're already winning the auction. Now they're kind of, you know, going together going, you know what, I'll let you have herb if you don't build here or all those sorts of things. And you're like, mm, yeah, okay, well that's, that's that gets to be kind of cross the line at that point. So uh, we, we kind of shy, shy away from that a little bit. What is that fancy word for that? When two people are working together and I, I can't think of it. I'll have to check my dictionary afterwards. <laughs> so <laughs> urbanization is a tricky thing Psst, over here. Hey, it's me. I generally have a hard and fast rule about not talking to people who go psst. But since it's me, I, I better trust myself. What is it? Hey, Ryan from last week. The word you're looking for is collusion. An agreement between two or more persons, sometimes illegal and therefore secretive, to limit open competition by deceiving or misleading. Oh, that's what it is. Thanks, Ryan, from one week from now. You're welcome. Now I sound extra smart. You sure do. What was I talking about again, future Ryan? You were transitioning into um, urbanization. Oh, thanks again. Oh, before you go, is there anything else you could warn me about? No, not really. Next week's pretty good. And the new Harry Potter movie is awesome. Cool. I'll look forward to that. All right, Ted's waiting for me. I got to get back. See ya. So we were talking about urbanization. Um, you know, sometimes you, you feel like you just need it. And sometimes when you play it, it almost seems to help the other people more than it helps you. Yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of urbanize only when you have to. Um, because whenever you urbanize, the person who goes directly after you has a huge advantage, oh, yeah. especially early in the game. Um, because they basically have a free city to go to that wasn't there before. And they have a lot more options than they had uh, versus yourself putting it down, um, you know, you're, you've used up an action that benefits somebody else. So I prefer not to take it until later on in the game and then using it strategically both for deliveries as well as, um, I think, uh, you know, the stopping deliveries of, of your opponents. Yeah, that's one thing that I've learned is, you know, the best thing is not to take Urbanize, but to be directly in turn order after the person who takes Urbanize. You, normally that's just fantastic. Yes, yeah. So let's talk about building track. Do you have any uh, strategies for building track that you could share? Uh, well, I think the most the most common thing, most people who've played Age of Steam for a little while, they're going to be aware that you want to create some sort of circle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a spoke, uh, a spoke situation um, or a straight line, never, never is good. You get a loop going or multiple loops or loops with a, a, a bypass somewhere in the middle of it. Yep. And you're going to be in really good shape, especially towards the end of the game when cubes are hard to come by and you're struggling to uh, max out your uh, deliveries right and another uh shape that's worked well for me is like a dog bone you know you've got a line of three or four cities and then you got spokes coming out of either ends of those if you strategically pick which cities you pick you can get some good long deliveries that way definitely yeah and having a little bit of mini loops or a couple of options at either end there so that you can go different ways in order to get to those cities that that tends to help quite a bit too and, and one thing that I've gotten better at is recognizing my cutoff points. I think that's something that takes some getting used to. I mean, there's there's like a little alarm bell that goes off in my head when I see, you know, one or two openings out of a city that's right in the middle of my network. You're going to lose the game that way. And so that's something I've gotten better at recognizing the more that I've played is, you know, that's sort of a situation where you decide, okay, this, this is a first build situation. Mm -hmm. Do you pay attention to upcoming cubes as well? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'll look to see what's going on there. That's that to me, um, you know, becomes that mid game 
uh, area where you know you need to be staring at the production chart, and you know at least internally you should be cheering for numbers to come up on those dice. Right. Um, you know, not too early because you don't want someone else to take them, but uh, you know you definitely got to get some of the cubes out there on the cities where you need them, um, and uh, kind of looking to see where they're going to appear. Uh, all I have to say, I don't think I've ever chosen production earlier mid game just to kind of help stock the production chart in my favor. Right. Um, you know, I still consider it a very, very weak action overall, and it, it tends to be a, a very late to end game kind of consideration for the most part. Yeah, if we can give Steam props for one thing, I think it's the way that they reinvented sort of making that production action a little more valuable. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, it's it gives you a, a tactical choice that you just don't have in the age of Steam. Mm-hmm. What about um, paying attention to the colors of the cities? What sort of choices do you make as far as the colors of cities that are on the board? Well, you know, you don't want to get two cities uh, close to each other. Uh, That's always, you know, you have red, blue, red, blue. Right. Because you've just killed off, you know, you're never going to get to that end blue city because that first blue one's going to take it away. Um, So that's, it's one of those things that I think that's, or much more advanced than people would think about because as you're building your network, you're like, I want to get here. And at the same time, as you're getting there, you'll realize, oh, well, it doesn't matter that I'm there because I can never deliver to it because I'm going through another city of that color, only two cities back. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for your potential pattern or your track build later in the game, you think, oh, this is a six delivery. It's really, really, it's it's a lot harder to visualize that the cubes are going to stop there as opposed to you just counting your links and going, ooh, six, great, right. great. <laughs> Uh, and you don't realize that, oops, there's a purple city in the middle of that purple cube's path that's going to end up being a four or a three instead of a six. Certainly. And one thing that really helps is if you've, if you've got a line, you haven't made a circle quite yet, if you can identify that middle of your network, I really like to have the middle of my network have sort of the same color, maybe blue and blue, or maybe if you can sneak a town in there in the middle of your network to have two of the same color in one town, and, and now you've got all of a sudden all sorts of large deliveries with uh, many of the different colors. Yep, yeah, definitely. So now let's get to some of the evil tactics of Age of Steam. We're talking about track building. Let's talk about blocking. How much do you like to block, Ted Allsbach? um it it really depends you know and it's you know i was it's funny i was actually talking about this with my wife who um is not at that point where she is able to i think strategically stop people and do what she calls nasty tricks Mm -hmm. uh for this sort of thing which you know i don't even think about too much i just kind of do it naturally i see oh you want to go to that city i could build there or here i think i'll build there so you can't get in there um, and does she still know, play with w- you after you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oddly enough. Wow. Um, okay, but uh, she doesn't appreciate it. So. <laughs> um, but we call what we call is this we call it spidering, which is basically sending out tracks from as many uh, of the sides of a city as possible, right? So that nobody else can get in, and especially if you've got you know a friend who's got a very similar network as you, uh, you know, you've got they've got similar cubes. If you can go ahead and basically prevent them from getting into a city, that is ideal. That is the thing to do. And, uh, you know, as long as it's not really hurting you too badly, uh, it's there is nothing quite as enjoyable as a look on their face when they realize they can't deliver all those cubes that they've been, you know, putting putting their end game uh, hopes on. Yeah, that is the viciousness is that blocking is such an important part of this game. You know, there's few games where you can really damage someone like you can in Age of Steam. You know, when you can see that someone is trying to connect two cities and they're three hexes away and you have, you know, two builds that you really need and one you could put to help your network or you could stop them from connecting those two cities to make those four deliveries. I mean, a lot of times you just have to throw that in there to stop them. Or you, oh, yeah, you make definitely. the build, you know, okay, this is going to be a link. Someone's going to want to use it. It doesn't really help my network, but it's it's a good link to have. Yeah. And it's also, also, you know, quite often you have a choice when you're building tracks. Where does that track go? And in the future, you know, are you going to make it more difficult for other people to connect those same cities or towns and cities that you're doing? And invariably, you know, we go out of our way and I'll even spend an extra track build to make sure that someone doesn't have an easy time connecting two cities, you know, that I think are, are valuable. 
And this is one of the things that I really enjoy about the game is there's a lot of the games in our hobby where you play them and if someone gets ahead, you're just like, oh, well, I guess you're getting more points than I am. Whereas in Age of Steam, you can really go after someone if, if you sense that they're doing well and you know, getting in their way is something you almost might have to do in order to take them down a peg or two. Yeah, we definitely the take one for the team mentality of, you know, so-and-so, oh my God, they're running away with it. But if I use my precious urbanization action to put a black city right in the middle of their network, that is going to, you know, that's going to cripple them and give us all a chance to catch up. I, I might take that and instead of giving me some direct benefit, take the leader uh, who's running away with it down a, a peg or two. Yeah, that's definitely uh, another one out of the Dirty Tricks playbook. If you haven't learned this trick yet, using Urbanize as a weapon. I mean, you can see that someone's going to make six-point deliveries, and they're they're delivering black, and you plop one down right in the middle and just make them very, very sad. And, and even yeah. if nothing else, you, you take away a couple points at the end of the game because you're killing some of the track. Right. Yeah, there's definitely towards the end. Urbanization is a tool for removing one victory point. You know, a, a town with three spokes or more that someone has, you're like, I'll just plop this right there. Ha, now you have one less victory point. And, you know, even if it doesn't stop their deliveries, uh, that's that's always a lot of fun. Because it, it's the last action that can do something a lot of times at the end of the game. But I know a yeah. handful of times I've taken urbanization just as a preventative measure, knowing that if I don't take it, someone will crush me with this. So I need to take Yes, exactly. And that is, it is, it's a defensive move a lot of times to get herb because you know someone else could do it. You know, you have those, like I said, those six deliveries. If someone else gets it in their head that they want to stop you, they could do it very easily. Um, paying a little extra to get herb to ensure those six deliveries remain solvent for you is a really important move. Do you know what the maple shove is? I have never heard that phrase. <laughs> you probably know what the uh, you know what the maneuver is. You just haven't heard that title of it. Now, you know, I play in Western New York, and we're right by um, the Canadian border, so we play with a lot of Canadians. There's a lot of trash talk, and so one of their favorite maneuvers to make the Canadians that I play with is you know if someone ends their ends their delivering turn on ten, you always automatically you must look for a way to give them one point so that they end on nine instead of 10 i'm sure you've you've seen that little twist. oh yeah yeah definitely and, and pushing them from 20 to 21 you know whatever that's always like oh well here you go here's an extra little uh, present for you <laughs> and uh but i have never heard it called a maple shove well, that's kind of funny that's uh that's what we have dubbed that that's our official name for that <laughs> seems appropriate do you have any other dirty tricks you want to share with us uh, not that I want to share with you. Oh, uh, okay. You keep this on the secret. Well, no, I think I think those are most of them. I I, I think you know, it, re it really depends on your definition of dirty trick. Um, you know, I think the preventing someone from, you know, if you totally block them off and you know that they can't connect, some people consider that a dirty trick. Other people consider that that's just you know, it's strategy. It's what you have to do in order to get ahead in the game. And you know, I think pushing people over to the next to the next uh, level. It's the same sort of thing. I mean, it has a very, very small impact on the game, but it's a lot of fun. It certainly is. Yeah. While we were, we were talking about etiquette uh, a little while before, and you know, there's a couple other issues that come up I thought would be interesting to talk about. That last turn with your deliveries, do you have any house rules about you know, when players are making deliveries? If a player is in fourth place, are there any rules barring him from you know, moving on other players' track? Or, there can be sort of a kingmaker aspect of this game if it's really close between a couple players do you have you know house rules to enforce players from being kingmakers <laughs> no unfortunately that's probably one of the areas where we have where we're lacking in etiquette because at that point people are so bitter uh, <laughs> you know if they're in fourth place that they're going to go after the person who burned them you know earlier in the game and they're going to uh... give it to the person in third so they can move in a second so that happens it happens a lot and you know it's almost you look them in the eye as you're moving that cube across someone else's uh, track going hey look who's getting the points it isn't you six points for purple <laughs> wait yeah, you're not so... purple yeah <laughs> Uh, the other thing that came up the other day was uh, we were playing and there is that etiquette decision of when you don't build on your own track, is that something that you publicly state out loud or are you the kind of person who subtly pulls your disc off and hope no one pays attention to you? <laughs> um, 
You know, I think in general, um, most of the people that I play with tend to be alert enough that they they know what's going on and they're they're watching that sort of thing I, I certainly am you know i see someone doesn't finish a track back of my mind that i'm looking to see where i'm in turn order you know am i going to go after them on the next turn am i going to go before them in the next turn and going after them on the next turn might be something i want to do because i'm thinking you know what they're not going to have the cash to finish that so i'm going to jump in there and get it so let's see where they're going to go in turn order i'm going to try and slide right behind them uh, i guess your awareness is better than mine i know sometimes i've had players sneak in hey where did that disc go that was on that track oh uh yeah i didn't <laughs> i didn't build on that and i, I you know i shame them publicly but <laughs> there was there was an ethical debate that followed so maybe people on the guild can discuss that how they feel about that <laughs> yeah I, I think my personal feeling is you probably should tell people um but you know at the same time if they're not paying attention yeah so it it, it really hasn't happened that i can remember in many groups um, and it might be also that i think when we pull it off at least i know for myself i'm saying you know what i'm pulling my disc off here because I can't afford it. Or a lot of times you forget to pull your disc off. That's probably happens more than anything else right. where yep. you're so busy in some other areas and you're focused that you left it there and someone else reminds you to go, Hey, uh, didn't you just build that one last <laughs> turn? Why is the disc still on there? And you're like, oh, oops, awkward. I'll just take it. <laughs> All right. So I think we're getting near the end here. Um, how about any more advice, last minute advice for intermediate advanced players of age of steam you have for them to get better at their age of steam game? Um, you know, I think, uh, the, the one thing that's really important once, once you feel comfortable in understanding how just team works and you have, you know, some notion of strategy is understanding what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, I think that that is key. That's the one thing that I think turned me from playing the game to really, really deeply understanding, um, the strategy, which is what get inside any, the other players heads and find out what they're going to be doing. You know, what do they want to do? What do the cubes look like for them? Um, you know, you're going to be much better off when it comes to, to the auction because of that, you're going to be much better off when it comes to the cubes that are available, where the track's going to be. Um, and you don't have to think several turns ahead. You can just think what they're going to do the next turn. Um, and you know how to start with that is basically when it's time for auction, look around and see the money situation, the, the cube situation and you can pretty much tell right away what it is that you know the top two actions that your opponents want and if you know what they are that's a big big advantage for you um you know and it's you don't have to read them you can just look at the the status of the board since it's all open information and you know unless they're not that good of a player they probably are going to pick you know the types of actions that you would in their situation so um knowing that is going to be huge yeah, I think uh, sometimes I guess I'm just too lazy to go through it and look through. I mean, you are right. That's definitely what you need to do to take your play to the next level is to go, okay, if I was red, what would I want to do on this turn? If I was green, what would I want to do? And a lot of times I think if, if you go through that and you go through that thought process, then you'll prevent yourself from being surprised from having players taking actions or taking cubes or taking spots on the board that you weren't expecting. I, I know a lot of times I've gotten caught in the trap that I get so, I get so focused on my own network and my own game about what I'm going to do. I don't spend that time to think about, all right, what is he going to do? Does he want to build there? That's, you know, going to connect my perfect five moves or does he want that urbanized? But that's really something that you need to evaluate because if they're going to get in your way, that's going to drastically affect your game. Definitely. You know, one of the ways that, that it's become a lot easier for me, um, you know, I have a slight unfair advantage in that, before I do playtesting for any of my new maps with other people, I usually do at least one, usually two or three self-tests of different variations of it, which is I sit down, I put out four or five sets of uh, markers, and I basically play as four or five players through the maps. And every time I'm doing that, it uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming at first because you're thinking about what it is that you want to do with the current player what they're going to bid for, mm -hmm. what the next player is going to do based on that. And it's hard to get in that, in that, that mindset. But if you, once you play a couple games that way, you actually, it becomes a lot more natural when you're playing with other people to think what it is they're going to do. And it comes to you a lot more naturally. So, you know, if you have spare hours, some spare time, sit down with a map, set up for a bunch of different players and actually play for each player trying to win, um, you know, and, keeping in mind that nothing's secret if you have a plan for red that wants to do this just the next player green goes you know what 
red probably is going to want to do that. What am I going to do to stop him? Or how can I, you know, play my own game based on that knowledge? That actually becomes really, really useful then when you're playing with other people. That's a great point. I did do that once. Uh, I had a friend who was trying to put together an Age of Steam map. And, you know, we play tested a few turns of it. So we each played two colors. And I, I found that tremendously difficult, you know, just to switch your gears every turn Turn looking at, okay, I'm going to build for this player. What does this player want to do? I'm going to build for this player. What is this player going to do? I mean, that takes a lot of work. Playing Age of Steam for one person is hard enough, let alone, yeah. you know, I give someone a lot of credit. I, I don't know if credit is the the right word. I think there's several words to describe a person who, <laughs> who would sit down in their basement and play four different players of one Age of yeah. Steam game. You know, that is yeah. I, I mean, for me, I pretty much have to do it because I've I've been burned when I first started doing maps. Um, you know, I have a great map idea. I'm like, all right, this sounds good. Take it in front of people, and you're like, oops, this totally doesn't work. You know, and <laughs> you know, you waste everyone's time, and then they don't want to play another one with you. So mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something that I always do. It's all my maps are self-tested before they go out and they play with other people. Uh, and the weird thing about that is, uh, you're right, it is difficult, and it's mentally exhausting. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually find that when I'm doing that, after I'm done, I sometimes I'm not, I don't even finish a game, and I'm like, I want to go lay down for a little bit <laughs> and just not do anything because my brain has been working so hard back and forth. And, you know, to time fly it takes a lot longer to play age of steam it takes like three hours for me to complete a uh four or five player game typically um playing all by myself because i'm going through all these things you'd think it would be faster but ah uh, it takes a long long time to think of all those different things as you're playing as each player but it is it is exhausting but like i said you know invest a couple hours doing that and a lot of that comes much more naturally when you're playing with other people than mm-hmm yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, by the time it gets back around to green and you're saying, all right, I was green. What was green doing? And then you have no yes. no time for your brain to rest, you know, or to pre-plan yeah. out your next move. So then when it gets to you, you just build the track. And that that's yeah. almost like work. Yeah. It, it is. It is a little bit of work, definitely. But it's nice because it's Age of Steam with absolutely no downtime. They're never go. waiting for anybody. That's true. If that if that's a good thing, if that's what you're looking for, <laughs> I would say. Lastly, uh, before we get to talking about specific maps, you know, the times that I've really been burned in the game of Age of Steam, and I warned about this in my introduction episode, is never, never, never get yourself in a situation where you have only one option. Whether that's that you need to have one action or that you need to have one track build. And if you don't get it, then your game is over. If you put yourself in that situation, a lot of times that's just going to sink you. Yeah, no, I agree. You definitely need to keep your options open. And I think one of the things we didn't talk about was um, you know, where you start your builds on a map. And building at one end of the board versus the middle. Um, you know, it might be nice to be all by yourself for a little bit, but it really does limit what your options are. You build in the middle, you might have company, uh, friends as we call them. Um, but it gives you a lot of options about what you can do throughout the game. You can see how the map develops and change your, your game quite a bit as opposed to being stuck in a corner where the only way out is away from that corner. Yeah, usually I, I like, really like to recognize the choke point and go straight at that choke point so I can get two ways out of it. Um, you know, there, there's definitely advantages to to going in a corner, but then norm, normally what happens is you find yourself by turn three, turn four, you have no way out of the corner. Yeah. Well, I think those were a good few last bits of advice for our listeners, and hopefully we've given you some good general tips on playing your next game of Age of Steam. Well, I'm going to cut that conversation there, because from there we start to get into the different expansion maps. Hopefully you got some tidbits out of there on some ways to improve your Age of Steam game, or at least it was an entertaining listen. I want to one more time thank Ted Alsbach for coming on the show, and look forward to that second part of that conversation about expansion maps to be available in the How to Play feed soon, labeled Episode 4X. But for now, I'm going to say so long from the How to Play studios, and say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Stern for the How to Play podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Stern. How to Play is not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, 
writing reviews, or rating the show on iTunes. Help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own. And that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. Thanks for listening. The How to Play Podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. For more information on these shows and much more, please visit www.thedicetower.com.